This podcast brought to you by the Catholic Parliamentary Liaison Office. We look at advocacy on mining and extractive industries in Africa. Thank you for inviting me. I feel very honored to be speaking to this uh, esteemed group. I particularly value the work that uh, Catholics, uh, Catholic bishops play in society. And as a development worker, I just want to highlight one role that I resonate with. Thus, being the voice for the voiceless. And I'm particularly pleased to have faith-based organizations involved in, uh, in uh, climate change advocacy. Uh, so thank you very much. I'm supposed to speak. I hope you can hear me. Uh, you can just press the, uh, the like button to show that you are hearing me. Uh, I'm supposed to speak on the process of transition towards uh, sustainable clean economies in the mining sector and extractive industries. Uh, uh, Let me say the whole world is moving towards low carbon and uh, climate resilient economies. Uh, uh, And what does that mean? It means reducing uh, greenhouse gas emissions from whatever we do, starting even from household level. And what's the the key sector when we are talking climate change, the key sector that that emits the most is the energy sector. And and, uh, how does mining sector come in? Mining sector uses lots of energy. I can, in an informal way, call them energy guzzlers. So it's important uh, to talk about mining. And um, maybe let me say, in this case, let me start with the importance of minerals in, uh, in green transition. You know that for the energy sector, we are moving away, for example, from coal, towards renewable energy sources. And that includes wind, solar, geothermal, and uh, of course, uh, it involves the story. Uh, so we use minerals uh, in these uh, technologies, wind, solar, geothermal, and of course the storage, and electric vehicles, for example, to name a few, the key, the key technologies. Uh, so what are we saying? Um, Africa is endowed with these minerals. We know that. Uh, today I really want to focus more on lithium because, uh, lithium is the bottleneck. Uh, some of you who might have heard that, uh, uh, uh President Biden, the U.S., and a climate change bill uh, that was approved. Most of what's in there is electric vehicles. And there is no way we can manufacture electric vehicles or uh, storage of energy without lithium. So yes, all these other metals and minerals I've mentioned are very important. Uh, And for example, 
70% of cobalt uh, is in, in Africa, in the Democratic Republic, Republic of Congo, as most of you might know. But let me go back to lithium. Lithium, uh, there is going to be a scramble for lithium, um, which raises uh, questions uh, on, uh, we know the negative impacts of, uh, of mining activities and lithium is no, no, is no exception. Uh, we have, for example, what are the negative environmental impacts of uh, traditional methods of lithium extraction? Lithium extraction uses lots of water, uh, evaporation, um, uh, uh, more like evaporation pans. Uh, it also causes ground destabilization, increased salinity of our rivers, contamination of our soils and toxic waste. Uh, let me not just uh, uh, dwell on in the environment, but mining operations, we know very well that uh, they displace uh, uh, communities. So displacement of local communities is again a key, a key issue that we have to take in account, into account being a community, like I said, that speaks for the voiceless. Uh, lithium deposits, where are they found? Uh, the highest lithium deposits are found in Latin America, uh, Chile, for example, but also in uh, Australia, uh, uh, so Argentina, China. In Africa, where do we find uh, uh, lithium reserves? The DRC, uh, Mali, and in Southern Africa, Zimbabwe actually has the highest uh, lithium reserves. Like I said, there is going to be a, a, a scramble uh, for lithium. And uh, right now, what's happening, I have told you of the negative impacts of lithium mine, lithium extraction. Uh, uh, there is ongoing research uh, and development activity to look at uh, technologies that, for example, use less water. And uh, I'm sure you've seen on the news, uh, US companies, for example, that are testing these uh, new technologies in, uh, in Latin America, like for example, in, in Argentina. Uh, but there are still doubts whether these will work. I mean, uh, if, if you do something in the laboratory and then you test in the field, the results may be different. So we, we know, of course, the labor issues that are involved with mining activities, uh, the human rights issues. For example, I'm sure all of us, is, they, we have read about child labor in cobalt mining in the Democratic Republic of Congo, the human rights uh, abuses, and of course, the health and safety standards. I was talking of the pollution of our fresh water sources. Um, 
So what can Africa do? Um, how can Africa benefit? In fact, before I go there, I, want, I, I forgot to mention that uh, we are moving away from fuel, fossil fuel, right? Let's look at Southern Africa, coal. So we are moving away from coal. Can you imagine uh, what will happen to uh, Whitbank? I've forgotten the new name for Whitbank. Uh, what will happen to that, that town if we move away from coal? What will happen to those people's lives and livelihoods? Because Whitbank is built around a coal economy. So that's why I'm sure you've heard about uh, the term uh, just transition. So we have, as we transition to renewable energy, to clean economies, we have to take that into consideration. People should not lose their lives and livelihoods. And if there's a need for maybe reskilling alternative livelihoods, then that should be done and we need proper job assessments, proper modeling green of green jobs that the new technologies will bring. So again, let me go back to what Africa should do. You find that uh, uh, who is going to do this extraction? It's mainly mining conglomerates from rich countries. They have the technology, they have the capital. And how does Africa benefit? In Southern Africa, how is Zimbabwe going to benefit? That, 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 that's a key question. And then what happens to the local communities? Uh, because it's land-based, uh, it's land-based uh, mining. Shall we start thinking of value addition because the tendency in Africa is to export raw materials. It could just be coffee, uh, but Ethiopian coffee, you find it in Starbucks, Starbucks may be rebranded. Uh, cocoa from Africa, you find it in Switzerland as chocolate, rebranded, and of course of a higher value. So we are saying, how can we have mineral value addition, how can we move just from exporting raw lithium because there is a huge market. In fact, a World Bank report says that the demand, I said I'm focusing more on lithium, the demand for lithium is going to jump maybe 50 times uh, between now and 2040 or 2050. So there is going to be scramble for lithium. We need capacity for negotiation capacity because private sector is going to be heavily involved. I mean, governments alone do not have the capital and the technology. So how do governments have, uh, how will they be capacitated to have that uh, ability to negotiate win-win uh, contracts so that their economies benefit, so that their local communities benefits, benefit. We also need strong legal and regulatory frameworks. Uh, 
uh, otherwise we end up with uh, not just environmental, but like I said, labor, health and safety, uh, human rights. We have to look at all that. Then we also have to look at governance issues in Africa, corruption. Will that not create a loophole that will disadvantage our communities uh, and our economies? And we do not have, uh, uh, I, we need to invest more into research and development. So redirecting our, our finance, it could be our budgets towards research and development so that we, we, we find local solutions. And then I, I talked about reskilling. There's a large skill gap. So how can we reskill our people so that they effectively participate. Let me go, go to the flip side of, um, of this argument uh, and say that the mining, mining companies themselves are also affected by climate change. So they have to prepare themselves to adapt or to mitigate I said they use lots of energy. So it means switching again uh, their traditional energy sources so that they emit less, less. And indeed, a lot is happening. If we look at uh, big companies in our region, like Anglo-American, They do produce a client. You can find it. It's, it's open information. You can Google it. So they are already uh, doing a lot in terms of looking at their energy, uh, energy, energy sources. Uh, extreme weather events do affect them in terms of, let's say, if it's open cast mining, the flooding that, that happens. If we have excess uh, storm water, for example, uh, the roads, the access roads to mines um, may again be affected by extreme weather events. So that's the other side of the coin. Mining, mining companies also have to take that into account. And there are lots of sustainability initiatives. Uh, companies are beginning to become, they are becoming very serious, serious in terms of greening their business strategy as well as their operations. Uh, I've talked a lot, maybe you may think it's just high grade minerals, but um, I'm sure you've, uh, you've, you've seen uh, uh, pavements. Uh, uh, for example, we are trying to make sure that uh, there is not much runoff when we have uh, storm water. And we are using, I'm sure you've seen it, I've seen it in Johannesburg, for example, and uh, some other cities where you put stones so that the storm water can infiltrate into the soil and that causes um, uh, less, uh, less flooding of our streets. So 
that again I consider it is is an extractive industry because you have to get those stones from somewhere, and it surely has an impact. Uh, again, let me uh, go to what's happening. Um, what's happening in the in the world? There is a talk about deep sea mining. These minerals that I've been talking about, uh, because uh, uh, most likely land-based mining will, will, will exhaust the minerals. These are non-renewable resources. So now uh, they are looking at deep sea mining uh, and there are concerns. We, you can get the same minerals I was talking about, copper, uh, cobalt, uh, zinc, from from the sea from the seabed uh, but uh, as most of you might know environmentalists and environment um, uh, organizations such as Greenpeace are fighting against this because up to now we don't really know the the impact of this to to marine ecosystems uh, but most likely the marine ecosystems will be disturbed and what happens to the blue economy? Uh, we have our people that depend on fishing, for example. What, what happens to those communities? Uh, so I think, uh, let, me, let me end it that. Uh, thank you very much and back to you facilitator. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for, for that. Um, we will uh, pack questions and comments for afterwards. Um, that being said, um, apologies, I forgot to introduce the speakers or request that they introduce themselves. Uh, I think it's because of our start. It was very hush-hush. So I'm gonna uh, humbly request that uh, Doreen introduces herself because uh, I might say things that, about her that are not actually what she wants people to know, Peter John would always say. Um, so over to you, uh, Doreen. Oh. Yeah, th thank you so much. Um, it's really a, a pleasure and an honor to be here today. Um, and uh, thank you, thanks so much for the invitation. And that was a great introduction um, from Daisy. And I, I Daisy, I, I learned so much. So really, really happy to um, to be here. Um, I'm Doreen Stabinski. I'm a professor of global environmental politics at College of the Atlantic in the United States. And um, I'm not at all a mining expert. I work in the area of climate change and the relationship that, that intersections with, with climate change and biodiversity. So in talking to you today, I hope um, I'm able to, to bring some more general ideas in, into the conversation um, that might be useful in your work. Um, and um, in particular, what can we learn about um, from the actions that many NGOs call false solutions. So let me um, let me start. I'm trying to figure out how to read my notes and see the project the uh, um, 
Do you project need things at the same time? Okay. I'm going to share my screen and uh, let's see if I can start this. Do you see that okay? Yes, thank you. Okay. So yeah, let's see if I can make these these um these slides move. Um, so unmasking false climate solutions in mining and related industries. And um, to start, I thought, you know, to to put the the phrase false climate solutions in context, it it might be useful to ask, well, well, what are actually real climate solutions if if NGOs, if non-governmental organizations and civil society are, are calling attention to these false solutions, when they think about false solutions, they also have a, have a discourse about real solutions. And thinking about that with respect to climate change, it's reducing our stations, it's moving societies away from dependence on fossil fuels, um, they are also looking at solutions that help to bring carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is, is what's leading to, to climate change. Um, and, you know, some of the, the, for example, some of the new technologies that, that Daisy's talked about in terms of batteries dependent on lithium, those are, those are certainly renewable energy technologies are, are certainly real solutions to climate change. But I should also add that in the discourse of non-governmental organizations, in the work of non-governmental organizations, equity and justice are also really important, really central frames. Um, you know, Daisy uh, talked about the displacement of communities, labor and human rights issues, and um, real solutions really need to have equity and justice embedded in them. It's not just a real solution to climate change isn't large numbers of electric vehicles in the United States <laughs> based on batteries that are made with lithium from, from the African continent and, and without paying attention to energy poverty and justice energy um, and the places where where lithium is taken from so so that said that's sort of the the set of real solutions or or a way to think about the real solutions um that are obviously about false solutions um but ngos are you know have have quite active campaigns against what they call false solutions Solutions. Okay, what, what do those look like? Well, what might be the point of false solutions? One, one phrase that NGOs use is, is dangerous distractions. That is, false solutions are those solutions that distract us away from real solutions, that make us focus in one direction and not think about, for example, reducing emissions or an energy transformation there in, instead of that. Um, why are they false? They look green, but they either provide a greenwash or a smoke screen for continued harm. They have their own impacts or, or both. Um, so that's, that's how I'd start to talking about um, um, 
false uh, solutions. I'm just looking, sorry, looking at my notes here and I, I might actually turn off the video. Um, and what I did there. Okay. Um, so in talking about false solutions, I wanted to use two examples. These are two, um, two examples in areas that I work closely, carbon offsets, carbon offsets I work with closely, biodiversity offsets, um, not so much. There are other examples of false solutions. So, for example, we can think about the area of geo genetic uh, geoengineering. Um, but uh, I'm going to focus on on carbon offsets and biodiversity offsets. And so, the first question to to ask is what what's an offset? An offset is where you, in very general terms, a bad plus a good, you add them together, and there's no net impact. It means that the, the bad continues to happen, but you add some good to it. And the, the idea is that the, the good balances out the bad. Um, I can go into more technical details. I wanted to keep this at a very general level. Um, but in the Q&A, we, we can certainly explore further. Um, a carbon offset, then in the climate change context, is where someone is increasing their emissions, they're continuing to emit carbon dioxide. Somebody else in some other place is either reducing their emissions or they're actually bringing carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Um, you'll notice those of you who, who have, are more involved in the climate change debate, you, you might recognize that it doesn't, uh, developing more renewable energy doesn't offset the increase in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Um, those emissions by investing in renewable energy. It's not technically an atmospheric offset. Um, there's no balancing out as this balance seems to be. Um, we seem to be- And you'll also notice with, at the bottom there, sorry? Um, there seems to be uh, a bit of a connection issue on your side. We didn't hear the last two, uh, I think two seconds or so. Um, it keeps going on and off on, on, on your audio. I'm so sorry about that. Have I, um, have I effectively turned off my video? I tried to turn off. I've done that for you on my part. Um, okay help a bit with the bandwidth. Okay. Um, I am... Can you tell me, are you seeing my PowerPoint or are you seeing the... Are you seeing the whole PowerPoint or are you seeing just the slide? Um, I'm seeing the, the entire PowerPoint. 
Mm. Let me just try also, to start this again. Also, I can hear you better now, so you, you can continue. Uh, it sounds you. a whole lot better. Thank you. Well, let me let me just say the last couple of points that I made about this slide because you missed it. Um, that you can see carbon offset valued in, in dollar terms, right? Um, a carbon offset is that's, that's marketable. That's, that's marketized. That's commodified. There are in another, and that the bad and the good add up. And the term that's used in that in those discussions is no net loss. There's no net loss of diversity. Um, I think it it it's useful to ask the question of whether or not um, you can actually add up um, biodiversity. Um, but uh, that said, that taking the, the lead from carbon markets, um, carbon offsets, uh, biodiversity offsets have been created. To do that, we have to turn carbon and nature into commodities. Offsets function through markets. The idea is that you use the market to find the place where the least expensive actions can happen, right? So... It's very expensive for a coal-fired power plant in the United States to transition. Oh, the idea is that, well, you just pay someone else somewhere in probably a, a developing country to take some action. And that, that, in theory, should offset the bad. Similarly, you know, a, a company carrying on emitting or destroying biodiversity would pay someone else to do something good. And that, of course, begs the question of how, how do you do that, right? Because you can't see carbon dioxide. How do you measure biodiversity, right? What is, what is being valued? What value do you place on nature, on ecosystems? What gets bought, what gets sold, and what price at what price, and, and who gets to determine the price, right? I wanted to use one case study, and this is um, a case study. It, it's, it's not so familiar to me, but it, it's the case study that, ca that came up when I was looking for information about biodiversity offsets and, and mining um, in the African region. And this is a case study in Madagascar, Rio Tinto, and their, their um, local um, uh, their local uh, affiliate, QIT Madagascar Minerals, um, is working on the coast of Madagascar on ilmenite extraction. And this was a, a pilot project where in the case of, of this ilmenite mining, ilmenite extraction, the idea was to find some other place, sort of similar, 
with a forest that could be preserved and to do kind of a trade so that they destroy the forest with ilmenite extraction and some other forest, the Tsitongambarika forest, um, gets preserved. The consequence, and, and this is, uh, you know, obviously a very... Um, uh, 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 missing the, the the adjective, but it, it's an it's a very illustrative and perhaps exaggerated um, impact of a biodiversity offset. But the forest that was chosen for the offset was there. Were, there was one forest chosen about fifty kilometers north, and then another forest of two hundred and thirty kilometers north. And in, in the case of a biodiversity offset, right, you, you need to protect the ideas. You protect forest in one place while you destroy it somewhere else. The practice of, of this biodiversity offsetting, which was facilitated by a local conservation organization that is affiliated with IUCN and BirdLife International and Wildlife Conservation Society and Conservation International was to keep the villagers of Ansozo from using the forest. The forest was identified, was, was cordoned off. Villagers were no longer allowed to go into the forest and take down trees in order to build their boats, in order to fish. They were no longer able to use the forest and areas at the edge of the forest for cultivation of cassava. The, the conservation group told them to go grow some cassava by the, um, by, the, by the coast and sandy soils where the cassava didn't grow. Um, and the biodiversity offset was that it was created through an exclusionary approach an idea that people and biodiversity conservation are incompatible if you are destroying biodiversity in one place to save biodiversity in another place, you have to make sure that he is actually using that biodiversity, that it is pristine, and, and that because you have to be able in some way to count, right? I mean, how do you value biodiversity? Maybe it's species, number of species, maybe it's special ecosystems, but the idea is that you have to have some way um, to, uh, to, to show to the world that, that you're preserving biodiversity, that there's no net loss of biodiversity. Which, you know, all of these approaches raise these profound questions of justice and equity. Um, and I've just got some questions here, but I think they're the ones that that in that non-governmental organizations and civil society and indigenous peoples and local communities raise with respect to these, you know, what they call these false solutions of the biodiversity offsets. The question is, is whose biodiversity is it to buy and sell? Who gets to decide that it's that forest outside the village of Ansozo? Um, that is going to be the forest that's, that's going to be preserved and that, um, and that the mining company gets to destroy. Like who, who, who says that mining company gets to destroy the forest that it's destroying? Whose lives and livelihoods get protected? And, and Daisy raised these issues, right? Is it the lives and livelihoods of, of villagers or is it the lives and livelihoods of 
of the Transnational Mining Corporation, um, for example, what values are taken into consideration and which are ignored? We have to value biodiversity by in some way, right? In order to put a dollar value on it. But, but does that leave aside and, and how are the values of things of spiritual values of food and medicine for local populations of, of livelihoods of popular local populations, which, which get to be included? Who gets to be involved in the decision-making around all of this? Whose way of life takes precedence? And, and I go back to the, you know, this question about lithium and electric vehicles in the United States, or, you know, in the case of, of, um, of carbon offsets, um, you know, a major use of carbon offsets from forest preservation activities in the global south is for airline customers in the global north, right? Who buys who buys carbon offsets? It's people, and, and I have included here a Delta Airlines slogan. Now you don't have to choose between seeing the world and saving the world. You can buy your plane ticket, see the world, add a few dollars onto the price of your plane ticket, which buy some carbon offsets for you in the global south and then you don't actually have to feel guilty about flying i mean this is this is the utility i would say you still have to feel guilty about flying but but this is how this is how carbon offsets um are used in in the global north um so whose whose way of life takes precedence it's it's the folks who have money and extra money to buy carbon offsets that end up determining the use or the protection of forests um, in the global south um, that get to decide that the, the villages of Ansozo may not actually have access to their forest anymore because of the guilt that, that, that uh, customers in the global north might want to assuage. I wanted to add, and this is, I can, I can send along um, the citation for this and, and actually the paper itself. It's, um, it's a different way of thinking about biodiversity and people. It's many of the authors are Southern African authors. of the global negotiations under the Convention on Biological Diversity, but it's articulated effective. This is published in the journal Science, shared approach, an approach which looks at people and nature together, their resources. Um, care about the fact that our, our nature is not your solution, that forest offsets and carbon markets are, aren't, a, aren't a solution. 
Um, and um, yeah, I, I'll, I'll wrap up with some more um, general comments um, about some of the struggles at the international level. And a, a quote that I found recently, which I thought was, it just spoke to me about some of the discourse right now in, in the climate space, um, and particularly around false solutions, that the great enemy of clear language is in sincerity. Um, when there's a gap between one's real and one's declared aims, one turns to long words and exhausted idioms like a cuttlefish spitting out ink. Uh, I like that visual. But in, in the case of, of false solutions, it may not so much be long words and exhausted idioms, but there are definitely new phrases that are, that are created in order to obscure what's actually going on. We have these vaguely green sounding claims like nature positive, carbon neutral, nature-based solutions, um, and, and they're useful, right? Those, those vague sounding, green sounding claims are useful for a company like Shell, for example, to promote itself as supporting nature-based solutions. They, you know, their, their solutions are continue driving your car in the Netherlands, but you can, according to Shell, you can drive carbon neutrally um, because they're planting a bunch of trees. So all you have to do is pay just a few pennies more for your, your petrol and um, they've got you covered. Don't worry about it um, because they've got nature-based solutions because they're planting trees um, and, and otherwise investing in, in forest preservation around the planet. Right. Um, in the case of biodiversity, there's a new term out there called nature positive. I had already introduced this idea of no net loss. We don't have a net loss. We we actually have some sort of net gain. The devil, of course, is is in details of, you know, what does what does that look like at the local level? Um, and so let me just end by, you know, coming back to the the title of of the um, of the presentation, unmasking false solutions. You know, how do we how do we do that? It requires looking behind the claims. It requires looking at who are the interests that are involved. Those are interests of polluters, but I would also add, in general, the global elites and, and the lifestyles of the global elites that offsetting and, and other false solutions are meant to preserve. Um, unmasking false solutions requires us to look at the concrete impacts on lives and livelihoods of the most Vulnerable. I'll also say, going back to one of the phrases that I started with, this idea of dangerous distractions. What are the real solutions that people are, you know, that companies are afraid to talk about? What are the real solutions that are being avoided? Solutions that are actually about stopping emissions, um, actually are about the energy transformation. Um, and solutions that are not just about the energy transformation, but that are about a, a just and an equitable transformation, um, as Daisy mentioned when, when she told us about, um, about just transition um, approaches. 
So that's that's my presentation for you this morning, and uh, I'm really looking forward to to your questions and further conversation. Thanks for listening. Please remember to subscribe at cplo.org.za.